Hello and welcome to the final episode of this season of Something About Science. In this episode, bananas and fruit flies get more than one mention, as well as humanoid robots, menopause and biodegradable plastics. As usual, we're all over the place. We hope you enjoy. So, to begin, imagine a world where robots look and act just like us, seamlessly integrating with humans and performing a multitude of tasks across various industries. Well, that world might not be too far away. I'll be giving you a whistle-stop tour of the latest developments in humanoid robots, which can be found in the article Are We Close to Truly Humanoid Robots? on azorobotics.com. Now, bit of background. Humanoid robots have come a long way since their inception in the 1930s. They have been designed to mimic human form and movements, bringing us closer to a world where robots and humans could coexist. The applications of humanoid robots are as diverse as they are impressive. In the healthcare sector, for example, these robots could help to assist patients with tasks like monitoring, physical therapy, and even medication delivery. Now, the advancements in humanoid robots have been nothing short of astounding. In recent years, we've witnessed some incredible breakthroughs. For example, in 2019, handsome robotics showcased Sophia and Han engaging in a captivating, some may say captivating, debate, revealing their impressive AI capabilities in speech recognition and natural language processing. Although I have to say that these robots did joke about taking over the world, so I'm not so sure I'm on board with that one. And for context for my fellow co-hosts here, do you know which one Sophia is? It's the one with the lady face where she's got like no back of her head. Oh yeah, I've seen Yeah, that. I do have an image. That. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know how easy it is for you to see. This oh, is that yeah. one. Yeah, so. She sort of looks like, ironically, like AI generated, mm-hmm. like an AI generated <laughs> face. Yeah. Like, create a generic woman's face. Very much so. Out of the list of robots I've got today, she's probably the closest to looking cosmetically human. The rest are kind of, like, Terminator vibes. It's also giving me Big Hero 6 vibes. The second one, yeah, it does look a bit like Baymax. So, the next robot we have is Toyota Motor Corps has unveiled its THR3 robot, which is capable of mimicking human actions. So, obviously, there are quite a few different applications that this could be involved in, but one that has been highlighted is that the TH3 or its variants could help surgeons perform operations remotely from anywhere in the world. And now this is kind of robotic-assisted surgery. It's quite a big topic, and one of the reasons is that with so many sometimes an expert for a particular type of surgery could be halfway across the world than you and obviously that just adds to kind of like the list of limits and costs and problems in actually being able to get the surgery that the patient needs. Now the next robot we have is coming from Japan and more specifically the National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology which has introduced its sleek HRP5P robot which handles heavy duty construction tasks using power tools and potentially game changing applications for the manufacturing and construction industry. Now, I'm just going to hold my laptop up. This is this one. See, I think they're cuter than Sophia. Hmm. Now to illustrate, this robot kind of looks like it's got like a little black backpack on the back of him and he's holding a big door so we'll have to see where those applications go in the future and the final robot i'm going to talk about is the one that does kind of give me like the most terminator energy now coming in at five foot seven inches which is my height exactly sanctuary ai has introduced its phoenix robot which has been powered by advanced ai software 
this dexterous robot is predicted to fill labour gaps in various industries, which kind of gives a bit of an example as how robots could help to overcome challenges in recruiting human workers. Now, obviously, in the future, we can kind of expect that human robots could become more intelligent, such as with the use of AI. But obviously, there's a lot of questions around the ethical use, such as if we do start to use robots to kind of fill those labour gaps, what will happen if we continually start to use them? Will that mean there's going to be less jobs available or is it just going to kind of boost the workforce and like help with productivity and help to kind of improve the skills of workers? These are just kind of some of the questions about the ethical use of robots and humanoid robots more specifically. I'm trying to find something in the news recently about a remote surgery that was like really like a landmark thing and I can't find what it was. It was like London to California. It's going to really annoy me. What are your thoughts on humanoid robots, Skylar? If you have any thoughts, feelings, dreams, wishes, goals. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's a hmm, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a, a robot will always be better at a lot of jobs than we will in terms of productivity and efficiency, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should give them the jobs. I don't know. I feel like it's a very capitalist idea to think that doing things faster and for less money is better. But obviously, like, there's going to reach a point where, like, capitalism becomes unfeasible if, like, no one is working. Mm. So it kind of just, seems like we're bringing ourselves closer to just this massive crisis (laughs) of like our western world Mm. but yeah we'll see the thing i was referencing was earlier in the year a it's not a robot but it's a surgeon in london performed remote surgery on a banana over 5g and the banana was in california and then (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's been okay. there's been like a recent update that scientists in China have also pre- like performed remote surgery. What did they do to the banana? Uh, I've got a video. This is all we do really well with the whole like audio format. Today. Yeah, this is why we need an Instagram. I know. Here we go. So for the listener, he's using a scalpel to sort of peel back the banana skin. Um, <laughs> and hasn't removed something from the skin and now he's sewing the skin back up proud of him did the banana survive (laughs) the banana has survived but like yeah he's like performing well megan's lost it doing some stitches can we stop i can't one thing about humanoid robots is i feel like we're so bad as humans i think when it comes to attaching thoughts and feelings to objects obviously Um, anthropomorphizing yes i feel like if we just have these robots who look and act like us where is that boundary going to be blurred i I could never be mean to one (laughs) i I say please and thank you to chat gpt i say please can you write me please can you do this please sometimes it gets confused i'm like i'm sorry yeah (laughs) same but that's I, not even something I can like see. While and that I'm doing looks it, though, like I human. was thinking like, oh, when you know the inevitable happens, and in yeah, I take so that they'll remember this. this they'll remember I that I was polite, and they'll be like, oh, we'll, we'll spare you. Then you can work in like the back rooms. It's fine. <laughs> she can help keep the they'll dust like, off the sc- surface. They'll like scan your eye, and then they'll go yeah. beep 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 beep. 
And I'll see all your interactions on ChatGPT. She said, please and thank you. (laughs) She lives. She lives for now. Send it to the line. (laughs) (laughs) For processing. (laughs) Listening to today's episode on Spotify? Make sure you answer the poll below and let us know if you're polite to the AI overlords or if you simply just don't care. One thing I always think so interesting with humanoid robots is I feel like we have so many of these developments that are quite cool but what seems to always just get attention is like a Boston Dynamics video of like a robot dancing do you know what I mean like it's like it exists and the the dexterity is there but it's because it's a human behavior though yeah true true it's something that like we recognize as being unique to to humans i think that's why it's like the uncanny what's it uh, uncanny valley uncanny valley mm. sorry i just messed up my word there if you see a robot just lifting things or like being dexterous it's a bit different oh my god they're dancing because like dancing's associated with i guess feelings and mm. experience that's true even though it is just programming true true we're just silly humans <laughs> silly robot humans. dancers wow <laughs> <laughs> i have a link in terms of AI. This one's also from azorobotics.com. I've branched out this week away from. I did notice Quantum. there was a robotics on there. I was like, Jeez. it's because I was editing it at Scope News and I saw it and I was like, that'll be a good podcast topic. But basically, scientists at Tulane University have developed a groundbreaking AI tool called MAFTA, which stands for Novel Machine Learning Based Automatic Fly Behavioral Detection and Annotation just quite a mouthful um so mafta for short and basically this system could tell if a fruit fly is hungry sleepy or singing singing uh, yeah fruit flies sing apparently what do they sing I don't, I don't wait wait wait, wait. <laughs> tell us let's, let's, let's brainstorm some fly song titles oh no okay i'm gonna have to um, think on this one well fly me to the moon oh yeah pretty fly for a fruit. white guy oh <laughs> that's a good one I don't know why, but the sort of genre I get from a fly is sort of like, I maybe it is because a fly Miss the moon is like crooner. Yeah. I don't know about the Europop also, like, just yeah, comes to into Europop. my mind. Oh, because like, their little legs yeah, are yeah. like, they're like Europop, yeah. 100%. So is this singing some sort of like communication? Do you know what? I don't know. It really didn't expand on that, which is insane, because to me, I'm like, that's the best part of the... They just like subtly put that in there. That, oh, yeah. Fly they sing. literally just put in brackets, yes, a fruit fly sing. But yeah, so basically... The MAFTA system can track individual flies within a larger group, identify behaviours and compare those behaviours with the fruit flies' genotypes. And I chose this one as well because I know you guys love a cheap content. So um, why study fruit flies? Well, for over a century, these tiny insects have been at the forefront of unravelling mysteries in human immunity and inheritance. Their short lifespan and simple genome makes them ideal subjects for such studies, and they've been directly involved with six Nobel Prizes. So around 60% of fruit fly DNA is shared with humans, making them incredibly valuable for understanding various biological processes. But back to MAFTA. This AI system utilizes cameras and sophisticated software to monitor and identify complex behaviors of the flies in a larger group. The ability to track and compare their behaviors with different genetic backgrounds is a game changer for researchers. Wen Kan Lu, a graduate student at Tulane University who developed the MAFTA system, says it not only speeds up research and minimizes human error, but also provides intricate insights into behavior genetics. The results from the study are published in Science Advances and challenge the conventional view that individual genes regulate pheromone generation and perception. The gene responsible for flies detecting pheromones, crucial for attraction and other processes, is the same gene that regulates pheromone generation itself. These findings have broad applications in understanding human behavioural evolution, metabolism and sex dimorphism. 
While we may not be identifying the health status of fruit flies just yet, MAFTA's potential is vast. As it continues to evolve and be adopted by researchers across the globe, we could be looking at an AI tool that unlocks a wealth of knowledge about the intricate behaviours and genetics of various species. That's so interesting. Yeah. I feel like there's some broader importance and significance of this study, obviously what I've just said, but the thing that stood out for me was just the little video of them checking the fruit flies and the fact that they can sing. But yeah. Oh, they go a bit crazy. Like when you... um, Did you do the shake and put under your armpit? Yeah. Yeah. And if you... um, It's really weird. If you like put them in the freezer, they sort of like... They don't die, but they sort of like go to sleep. Mm. And you see them wake up and they go like extra crazy when they first wake up. Mm. It's weird. But it's so interesting. You say that like they're a model organism and that we can sort of like extrapolate results from them to other species, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, sixty percent of the yeah. DNA I said. And it's Which is crazy. They, yeah, really crazy. Well, don't we share a lot of DNA with bananas as well? Yeah. And onions. And onions. Mm-hmm. It was the species that you said earlier, I think, the Drosophila melanogaster. Did oh, yeah. I say that right? Everyone I know says it differently. What's interesting is that most of the time when people say Drosophila, they do mean melanogaster. Yeah. Just because it is like the main one that people there are other species of Drosophila, but it is the main one that people use just because it is, yeah, just a model. Good old, good old classy model organism. Well, mine sort of links to yours a little bit because you mentioned sexual dimorphism. That's something that I'm going to be concentrating on when I talk about a recent article that was published on newsmedical.net called Menopause and the Microbiome. Obviously, we all know what menopause is. It's the transition from active reproductive function to declining sex hormone production in women. And that's something that is being spoken about more in like the public sphere as people become more open and it's less of a taboo. But did you know that menopause is also a significant time of change in women's health in general, including changes in the risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes? And many of these changes are actually intertwined with the microbiome. Again, the microbiome is something that has been hitting the headlines a lot recently, especially the gut microbiome. We have several microbiomes in our body, whether that be on the skin or in the gut. And it's something that's got a lot of interest because of its health implications. For example, one of like the big things that I hear about is the Zoe project. I always get like tailored ads for that all the time, like on YouTube and stuff like join Zoe. It's like a big massive study of like microbiomes and gut health but you have like this you know how you can have these diabetes monitors that like are attached to your arm like wearable it's like that but it monitors i don't actually know exactly how it works but it monitors something (laughs) (laughs) i should probably know about this it like monitors your like gut health i presume it's like a big huge study they're trying to get as much data as they can to like learn more about the gut microbiome and stuff but it's like headed by this guy. Who's it headed? Producer Amy's on it. I'm on it. You're on it. Who's it headed by again? Is it Tim Spector? Yeah, it is Tim Spector. Yeah, Tim, Tim Spector, who's like this like expert on gut health. Yeah, so it says that Zoe analyzes your unique gut, blood fat, and blood sugar responses. So it is essentially like a diabetes monitor in that sense, but it's got that extra bit of monitoring your, your gut health as well. So anyway, microbiomes are a really hot topic. And there's something that's really interesting because it's not something that previously was given as much attention as maybe it should have been. 
So the most well-known of the microbiomes is the gut microbiome, and it's a bustling community of microorganisms residing in your digestive tract, and it plays an essential role in processing dietary fibre, amino acids, and even hormones like estrogens, which are crucial players in women's health. And as we age and transition through the menopause, the gut microbiome also changes. And research has shown that sexual dimorphism, as Skylar mentioned earlier in the episode, which is a difference between males and females, also extends to the gut microbiome with distinct shifts occurring during puberty and adolescence. And these changes are heavily influenced by sex hormones, which are those chemicals that orchestrate many bodily functions. But that's not all. Age-related shifts in the gut microbiome have also been observed. This complex ecosystem isn't just a one-way street. It contributes to the gut-brain axis, a dynamic connection between the gut and the brain that affects our metabolism, neuroendocrine pathways, and even our immune system. And us women have a richer gut microbiome composition than men, and this diversity actually fades with age. So as menopause kicks in, the gut microbiome undergoes changes that impact various aspects of health. And speaking of menopause and the gut microbiome, did you know that postmenopausal women actually share more similarities with men in terms of their gut microbiome composition than premenopausal women? Really? That's interesting. This shift is accompanied by a decrease in microbial diversity, which might explain why some health issues become more prevalent in women as they age. One key player in this microbial symphony is Adoribacter, and its rise in abundance after menopause can lead to both beneficial and adverse effects, impacting serotonin synthesis, neuronal stability, and even bone health. Yes, you heard that right. Your gut bacteria might influence how well your bones hold up over time, which is crazy to think about. But what about maintaining those crucial sex hormone levels after menopause? It turns out that the gut microbiome plays a pivotal role here too. Around half of estrogens in postmenopausal women's circulation are excreted in the bile, but some gut microbes can actually reactivate these hormones, affecting hormone balance and potentially even cancer risks. Now you might be wondering, can hormone replacement therapy help attenuate these changes in the menopausal gut? The jury's still out on that one, as various factors like lifestyle, diet and medical conditions play a role. But it's an intriguing avenue for future research. So there you have it, the intertwined relationship between menopause and the gut microbiome. is a dynamic dance of hormones, bacteria and health outcomes that's still being unraveled by researchers worldwide. I'd say it is fascinating. The more you learn and the more, I suppose we talk about on the podcast as well, now we've uh, mentioned it on previous episodes about the gut microbiome Mm -hmm. and just everything that is involved in. And then not just the fact that it's linked with it, but then the pathways and biological mechanisms and consequences like further down the line. I know, Daniel, you mentioned things like bone health. You mentioned serotonin as well, which I think is like so interesting so interesting when you think of like one of the major sort of symptoms of like menopause or postmenopause is like dips like dips in Mm. mood and like Mm -hmm. mental health issues and depression and anxiety so I think that's really interesting no definitely and it opens up the avenue of sort of like food-based therapeutics as Mm -hmm. well which I think is a really interesting space as well like food as medicine like prescribing like certain food groups think that's like really interesting and has a lot of potential as well i like how this links to our previous episode as well when we talked about mental health and the microbiome oh yeah i didn't think about that Mm. no definitely and i think as well with a topic like menopause i think it can be such a personal experience that like women will go through i think the more we know and the more we know how it is very multifaceted and that there's not just one easy way to 
help with symptoms or to quote unquote fix it is just good for like women's health in general and awareness of women's health so yeah i'm glad you shared that with us today right i'm going to bring us back to flies so on a completely different note i want to share some new research that has been helping scientists reshape our understanding of reproduction in the animal kingdom now the reason i chose this one today is because I think it was in June, Costa Rica reported that one of its crocodiles who'd been in captivity had had a virgin birth and now for the first time scientists have unlocked the genetic cause of virgin birth also known as parthenogenesis in an animal that typically reduces sexually which is our favourite fruit fly and model organism Drosophila melanogaster Now, this remarkable ability can now be switched on in female flies, and what's more, it's also passed down through generations of females. So, a bit of background to the research. In the natural world, most animals will reproduce sexually through fertilisation. However, in virgin birth, an egg develops into an embryo without the need of fertilisation, essentially eliminating the requirement of a biological male. The offspring of virgin births are not exact clones of their mother, but they are genetically very similar and they're always biologically female. So this new experiment was carried out by researchers from the University of Cambridge and to achieve the results, the researchers first sequenced the genomes of two strains of another species of fruit fly, the lesser known Drosophila mercatorum, I think I've said that right. So one of the strains of these two different strains needs a male to reproduce, whilst the other can actually reproduce only through virgin birth. They then identified the candidate genes that were switched on or switched off when the flies were reproducing without the fathers. Now, with the candidate genes for virgin birth ability identified in this other Drosophila species, the researchers altered what they thought were the corresponding genes in the model fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, and turns out it worked. This particular species, the Drosophila melanogaster, suddenly acquired the ability for virgin birth. In their experiments, the female flies with the ability for this virgin birth waited to find a male for about 40 days, but then eventually proceeded to have offspring when no males were present. Scientists think that this virgin birth can serve as a survival strategy and it allows for a one-off generation that helps to maintain the species. And this intriguing discovery opens up questions about why do virgin births happen and why are they potentially becoming more common? You might have seen the coverage of its existence in a certain Costa Rican crocodile. And it could also have significant implications for our understanding of the reproductive strategies of various species. So to make sure I understand, they turned on the genes in the other species that allowed them to reproduce asexually. The way I understand it, because I cannot remember the details of the study, but essentially they have this other species that has the ability to reproduce mm-hmm. without fertilization. I guess my main question was, so did these species that usually reproduces sexually have the genes necessary to be able to do this already? I'm going to And then they were just kind of like switched on, if that makes sense. That is a very good question. That is a very I'm, good question. I'm good at a very, very good question. So... To try and answer the question, the scientists sequence the genomes of the sexually reproducing and the virgin birth strains of this Drosophila. So you've got the two different strains of the flies, right? Not the model organism, the comparative fly. And they then identified the differences in the gene expression. So they identified candidate genes in the eggs. And then then basically tested whether manipulating the expression of these candidate genes 
homologs that had been identified in the fly that has the ability to have version birth. So if it's a homolog, then it's that basically ones that are similar in the other Drosophila, our model organism, to try and identify if they increase the expression of these candidate genes, would that result in the Drosophila melanogaster, the model organism, being able to have the ability of virgin birth? Okay, so it, it's it's genes they already had, the, but they genes they already had that are exactly the same gene, but are homologues. So that means they sort of are that species version of that gene, and so similar enough for it yeah, to work. Similar yeah. enough. So if you identify like those homologues in other species, theoretically, other species could do this too. I'm so confused. <laughs> I picked the wrong thing. <laughs> so basically, kind of building on what the question you've asked there about whether different species can do this i think the idea of research of this is less about trying to replicate it and more about trying to understand how reproduction in species occurs and what this might mean for species development and species evolution because if say we have a species that can reproduce without fertilization you know what does that mean for it's like success of a species because ideally we kind of the whole idea of a success of a species is passing on your genes to your offspring. And we normally think about that as through typically sexual reproduction, right? Well, the whole, yeah, the whole basis of natural selection of natural is based se- on yeah. sexual reproduction. So what would then happen if we have a species that, say, just has these virgin births? And then would it continue to be successful? Would it continue to be viable? Is this something that's happened in the past? Like, could it be used as a reason to explain why some species developed and some species didn't? could also impact like conservation efforts because mm-hmm. there's a lot of decision making in conservation in terms of what resources get given to which species and if you have a species that can can uh, exhibit this behavior versus one that can't mm-hmm. maybe the decision would be to conserve the species that can't because you know that that other species has this version yeah. birth mechanism that they could lean back on so mm-hmm. it's got a lot of implications i think it's very interesting so at a basic level they aren't inserting new genes into say our model organism they're just looking for candidate genes that are genes that are kind of similar enough and will probably be involved in the same mechanisms and have the same kind of phenotype and genotype that we would want them to have what would happen if we say change that so they may kind of be expressed more which is what happened in this instance what would be the results of that and they kind of wanted to just see what would be the results of us, let's say, messing with the existing genome in the model organism. Would that result in the same phenotypes that we see in this comparative Drosophila species? Interesting. Thanks. Genetics is hard, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what species will be next? Mm. Flies are cool, though. I think, like, it's just... I just love the fact that it's like this fruit fly, which is, if anyone's had like fruit flies in their kitchen, they are oh so God. annoying. as such a nightmare. so many at the moment. Pro tip, apple cider vinegar, put a bit of hot water in or microwave it. And then some, if you've got any fruity dish soap, pop that in there. And this is, sorry, Drosophila. But like it basically attracts, attracts them and they go in it and then they can't get out. But I always, I hate the smell of vinegar. The, the, the fruity, fruity soap. Oh, fair enough. Takes it away. I love yeah. the smell of vinegar. I'm not. I'm not a vinegar and chips person. What? I know. I love vinegar and chips. Just salt. Fair. Um, this has no link to anything we've talked about yet. <laughs> um, but my other thing was muons, and that's even less 
blinky. So I'll save that for next time. And I'm going to talk about bioplastics again, because I love talking about bioplastics. And we've covered a lot of fly content on this podcast. So <laughs> it's time to go back to another emerging topic. So I'll be talking about bioplastics, as I said, and how researchers at University of Washington are making waves. So we all know that plastics are an integral part of our lives, but the downsides are plastic waste accumulating, breaking down into microplastics and causing significant health and environmental concerns. The best case solution lies in bio-based plastics that can biodegrade. The catch is that many of these bioplastics already developed that are scalable require specialized commercial composting facilities that are not universally available and still require energy and such. Now here comes the game changer. A team of scientists at the University of Washington have developed new bioplastics that degrade in the same period as a banana peel in a backyard compost bin. To link to bananas. I knew there was a link somewhere. (laughs) So these bioplastics are entirely made from powdered blue-green cyanobacteria cells or spirulina. Um, Oh, that's very good for you. Yeah. And it's yeah. used in trendy coffee yeah, shops. There's like blue, yeah. blue. Don't yeah. eat the white plastics though. <laughs> <laughs> so they use pressure and heat to process the spirulina powder into different shapes, just like traditional plastics. And the result was bioplastics with mechanical properties comparable to common single use plastics. So Dr. Eleftheria Rumeli, an assistant professor of material science and engineering at UW, explained that the spirulina-based bioplastics have a degradation profile similar to organic waste, but also on average 10 times stronger and stiffer than previously reported spirulina bioplastics. And that was kind of the main motivation and main takeaway from the study. But basically, this opens up new possibilities for applications in different industries, such as disposable food packaging and household plastic waste. Spirulina was chosen for several reasons it can be harvested on a large scale as it's already used in various cosmetics and foods if you guys have said (laughs) um, in fancy coffee shops (laughs) and additionally spirulina cells absorb CO2 as they grow making it a carbon neutral even carbon negative feedstock for plastics they also have unique fire resistant properties which I thought was interesting and they self-extinguish when exposed to fire unlike traditional plastics which either combust or melt so if you think about plastics used in I don't know data centres or you know more flammable uh, flame flames vulnerable vulnerable (laughs) settings thank you Danielle and one of the most impressive aspects of this research is the scalability of the bioplastic production the team used existing methods involving pressure and heat to shape the bioplastics and this eliminates the need for major changes to manufacturing lines which obviously reduces the cost when incorporating it The one downside is it does have a vulnerability to water obviously in order to biodegrade but the researchers are confident that they can tackle this problem and in certain applications there's ways around that. So anyway, it's exciting to see innovative solutions in the fight against plastic pollution and with more research and development, hopefully this will become a more mainstream choice. And yeah, I think a lot of the research that comes out around bioplastics or plastic alternatives, they're fantastic. But when it comes to recycling, Recycling is still so flawed and plastic is always going to end up on the side of the road or, you know, in places it shouldn't, in the ocean or whatever. If you can have plastic, that we should still definitely recycle it. But on the off chance that it's going to end up in the environment that it can biodegrade, that would be absolutely game changing. Yeah. No, definitely. I think the more we learn about like the shedding of microplastics as well, sort of like just adds more sort of like evidence to your argument in the sense that it doesn't even matter if it does end up in 
water or another environment permanently it just has to be there for a bit and some microplastics will shed off and that's mm. you know the bioaccumulation of that is having really adverse effects so yeah. Think, yeah yeah i mean yeah there's always going to be limitations if if a plastic is easy enough to degrade in you know a compost bin then it's not going to be as hardy as some plastics but that doesn't mean that it can't be used in other kind of applications yeah no definitely i think one application that i think i've seen like alternatives being used for is cling film and like mushroom based alternatives to cling film which i think like some people complain oh it's not as good but like come on your mycelium mycelium yeah yeah i think it's like yeah i think that rings a bell but i think those like you say like single use plastic for like short term think about the amount of like plastic cutlery or or food packaging or i mean ideally you don't want that stuff getting wet anyway it's like focusing on one area of a problem trying rather than Mm. trying to like fix the entire thing and again like i think it brings us back onto that topic of like making snowball change and how like you know focusing in one niche industry or one niche area to kind of like help make a difference can eventually contribute to a wider kind of industrial change overall yeah for sure and the fact the production is so scalable and it wouldn't require a massive change in machinery or you know methods I think is really important as well no definitely I think like one of the problems that many technologies and new products face especially in kind of tackling or trying to attain those like key sustainability goals is making things like commercially viable and it's just it's really good to hear that that is something that it seems like it is so hopefully yeah watch this space yeah (laughs) thanks for listening to season one of something about science but don't worry season two will be right on the way soon Woo! (laughs) please keep in the woo